As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The race is on, and Formula 1 2020 is finally going to get underway at the Red Bull Ring this weekend. So almost four months after our first attempt to do so, we're going to once again preview the F1 season. But a lot has changed since March, and it's a very different campaign we're looking ahead to this time, and in a world that has changed in so many ways. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Uh, Mark, I am expecting big things from you on this uh, preview. In our March preview podcast, you mentioned it had been raining for 40 days and 40 nights in the north, suggested that might be a sign of the apocalypse. And in a way, you were right. That's certainly probably the closest thing we've got to a, to a soothsayer. So what have you got for us this time? <laughs> well, I would predict that my next prediction won't be as accurate. So there, I've covered that one off. That means that I'll be right whatever happens. You've descended into a troubling paradox now. This could, this could well, that's just, that's just the nature of reality, isn't it? That's how it works. Very good. Yeah, You see, you see we've gone down all sorts of uh, interesting avenues already. That means you've got quite a lot to uh, live up to, Scott. What's what's this week's party political broadcast on behalf of the Swedish Tourist Board? <laughs> uh, it's boiling. It's, abs- it's absolutely roasting. Um, yes, it's, uh, summer has come to, to Stockholm. So it's 30 degrees outside at the moment. My girlfriend is currently, uh, she's, uh, she's not at work today, she has walked five minutes down the road to where where the lake, uh, one of the, the the big lake in or in in Stockholm, sort of comes around into a bay. So she's out there at the moment with, with a friend and and some tinnies and a picnic, going for a swim and, and having a bit of a drink. Obviously, she's drawn the short straw here because I'm here with you guys, so I'm winning. In a way, in a way, but you couldn't resist the opportunity to enlighten and entertain F1 fans. Now they've uh, finally got some racing to uh, to look forward to. No, that's true. And, I'm, you know, the podcast uh, will hopefully be, it, it could get more entertaining as we go, because as, uh, as I said before we, we started recording, I do have a nice chilled can of cider with me just to try and, you know, fight the, uh, fight the heat. So I've got my summer shirt on, I've got a, a, a can of, of cider and I'm ready to, ready to preview F1 excitedly. And as you said, you've given us a tagline. You've said it could get more entertaining as we go on. So stick with us because we might get more entertaining. You never know. It hasn't happened yet, but uh, but who knows? Uh, well, let's let's get on with it. Mark, it's a rapid fire season compressed into less than half a year. We don't know exactly where we're going after the first eight races. COVID-19 has wrought havoc on F1's economic landscape. So does this mean the season we're previewing today is fundamentally different to the one we were looking forward to in early March, even though it's still the same set of teams and drivers? I think it potentially does mean that, yes, um, especially if the performance of the cars is closely enough matched that we get into team competition. We know we've definitely got fewer races than were scheduled back then, but not how many fewer. And that lower number, plus the uncertainty of just how many races there are going to be, will lend an unpredictable element. So normally when you've had a bad race, but there are another 20 races in which to claw back the penalty of that, it's a different dynamic to this rapid fire thing. 
So teams hate not having variables fully under their control. Part of competition is about controlling the variables as far as humanly possible. And this this one, you just can't, you can't model it. So the pressure ramps up because the penalty for getting a wrong call is potentially more profound. So it's, it's bound to add a few jitters. And um, we can assume Mercedes is a favourite for the title, but we've got the first three races at venues that in recent history have been very much Red Bull tracks, and that wasn't going to be the case back in March. So they may not be representative of the season, but if you just indulge me in if, if Max wins those first three races in Austria and Hungary, it's difficult for the competition to believe that, okay, don't worry, this is just a track anomaly and it will even out as we get to our tracks. In that moment, it will look and feel like, hang on, they may have the faster car. What are we going to do? And that might drive some very different decisions to those that might have been made in a more conventional start. So none of that means much, though, if Mercedes turns out to be half a second faster than everything else. But if we have two evenly matched cars, yeah, the competitive dynamic and battle of this late start season could be very different to that, what we might otherwise have seen. Yeah, I, I, I'd just add to that that we've got, uh, you know, I haven't I haven't done a tally of it, but we've we've got so many different variables and and so many variables that have changed from from the first race, right from uh, exactly what kind of car each of the big three teams is going to turn up with, through to engine specifications being locked in from when they get going in Austria, so there won't be upgrades for on the engine side coming over over the rest of the season. We've got got lots of triple headers sort of in the early phase of the season. We could have nine races in 11 weeks and who knows how many races thereafter it's going to be in in very different ways it's going to be chaos at the start of the season and as as mark said the penalty for getting it wrong is going to be so high i was listening to to mercedes boss toto wolf uh, last week just sort of talking about the the consequences or the challenges of this season and he just said there's no there's no way there's no chance of of getting it back if you have a bad race if you look at Someone like Lewis Hamilton and, and how he's won, how he won last year's title. His his results on his bad days were astonishingly good. One or two, one or two outliers, but other than that, just like really, really high rate of point scoring. It's not just the peaks that were excellent; it was the the so called low points as well. So anyone who has one or two bad days in a sixteen race season when it's all compressed, they're they're just going to lose so much ground early on, and that will be the case throughout the order with all the different battles, uh, the, all the different battles that are taking place. It's absolutely fascinating that drivers and teams are going to have to adapt to it. It's, it's brilliant. So many unknowns, and considering this was meant to be a sort of almost a continuation of 2019, it's a, it's a very very different season to be going into than what we were preparing for a few months ago. It's that chaos you refer to that I really like because. Formula One, in terms of controlling the variables, it tries to control its environment as well. So, you know, we go to 22 different circuits in a normal year. We should have done this year. But although they're vastly different places and they might look a little bit different, the F1 paddock is still fundamentally the same place. Everything works the same. The garages work the same. The the motorhomes, the environment is so well controlled. And, And this is the really interesting thing because it means that all the personnel and drivers, everyone's going to be confronted with things that are familiar but in a slightly different context they're going to have masks on there's going to be social distancing the whole biosphere thing the fact that you can't just relax and and if you've got a bit of a bit of time in the evening go out and have dinner with some you know friends from an opposing team that kind of thing you've got to keep yourself to yourself so the whole thing will have this uh this sort of uncanny valley thing that it's all familiar but it's just not quite right and that that can engineer into people a certain discomfort uh, they're not relaxed and comfortable with exactly what they're what they're doing so my hope is that it creates it does create more variables notwithstanding the fact that they don't know exactly where the season's going to take them beyond uh, the the eighth race at, at, at Monza at this stage but because it's just all a little bit a little bit weird and, and strange so I'm hoping we'll see drivers and teams challenged in new ways because that's what it's all about teams and drivers desperately try to control everything we love uncontrollables and uh and and variables but i think the one thing is that always the best teams and drivers are the ones who are best equipped to deal with it and i think probably mark that's what we're going to see isn't it it's not a surprise that say lewis hamilton is a very very capable adaptable driver who's able to deliver his best in all sorts of of conditions so although it might create a few mishaps it'll also allow the very best teams and drivers to show why they're so good 
Yeah, and also that's where you've seen Lewis. If 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 he's, I mean, he's been impressive from day one in his Formula One career. But if you look at the last, say, three years, where I think he probably stepped up to another level, it wasn't through being any quicker than he already was. It was, it was that all round, you know, um, roundness to his game, and and I think that's going to be even more important uh, this time around. And it's going to be interesting to see if um, guys earlier in, into their career who haven't yet uh, achieved as much, who are maybe you know frothing at the bit to to, to get their title tallies underway, people like Verstappen and Leclerc, if they can um, achieve a, a similar roundness of performance, that's going to be a big challenge for them. But it's also really interesting for a driver like Lewis Hamilton. Let's say, I mean, he's title favourite at this stage. We still can't be sure that he will close it out. It'll be the the record equaling seventh title if he wins the title. And there's been a lot of discussion, and we've talked about it, whether it's that the season is somehow invalidated or undermined by being abbreviated, condensed, however many races it is. But to me, let's say Lewis Hamilton were to win it as his seventh title. I actually think that winning a, a strange and compromised and unfamiliar championship with all these weird things going on is probably worth even a little bit more than just more of the same old, if you see what I mean. Because it's not just doing what he's done the last few years. He's got to do the same in terms of results, but just in this slightly strange environment. So he'll be tested in different ways, which I think is great. And if it allows another driver to to come to the fore, then then that's great as well, which is why I'm actually quite excited about what we hope will be a one-off season. But you know, for all the disruption and negativity of this, it does at least create these unique conditions. We're never going to see a season like this again, we hope. We've certainly never seen one before. So that that's that's what's getting me going. Yeah. Uh, you know who I think would have been really good in these under these circumstances? Nico Rosberg. I thought you were going to say Ricardo Zanino. No, less so. Um, Nico Rosberg, because he was just so mm, consistent and he was so... If he got badly defeated one weekend by Hamilton, it was just scratched away, and next weekend he bounced straight back. Um, and I think recovering mentally from adversity is is probably going to be um, a, a valuable quality this year. That's true. Although his replacement at Mercedes Bottas can be quite robust mentally as well. Scott, you were writing a bit about this the other day, weren't you, with some comments from Mika Hakkinen about uh, about Valtteri Bottas. Yeah, Mick has got uh, got quite lofty expectation for Bottas this year. He thinks that Valtteri's uh, he, he's he expects Valtteri to to fight for the title and, and actually become champion. Um, I think Bottas is an interesting one because we we know that over one lap he is tremendously fast, but he he lets too many points go on 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 Sundays, and he he talked quite a lot at the end of last year and then again in preseason about um, the well the original preseason. Um, about the the stuff that he's been working on on his side of the garage and with his driving style and, and lots of lots of little things that sort of add up that he was kind of hoping would would be the way to, the the key to finally beating Lewis and he was frustrated because he'd put all this effort in and then couldn't really uh, actually deploy it when when it mattered so he he's been away over the last few months he's been. He's been casting, he's been rallying, he's been doing loads of physical training. He he looks and sounds like properly up for it. The different videos that you've seen of him and he's done quite he's done a couple of really in-depth chats with Mercedes about his mindset and that sort of thing. So he he seems properly up for it. What what I what I'm a bit doubtful of is that well he does have strong mental resilience. He has admitted that his his mindset at the end of 2018 was was not great. He was he wanted the season to end. He'd got into this run of of being beaten. I don't think everything was where he wanted it to be personally either. Um, so he just wasn't in a in a great place. Whether his happiness now as a person and his he, where he is as a driver is now strong enough to maintain that could be huge because he always talks about that sort of finished Sisu and, and, and having that strength inside to, to bounce back. But what we haven't seen really from Bottas, I don't think, is what Mark was saying about Rosberg, that ability to get smashed one weekend and come back the next. Valtteri seems to be someone who sort of thrives a little bit more on building some momentum for, for himself. And when it started to go away from him at the end of, in the second half of 2018, it properly went away from him and he, he couldn't he couldn't stop the cycle and if he got if he comes anywhere close to that this year, his title hopes are going to be over before they've even started. 
Yeah, I think the start's going to be very, uh, very important for him. But maybe the fact it's a condensed season means he can get off to a strong start and he hasn't quite got that same long, long haul because knocking a few months off the season will will make a difference, I guess. So yeah, let's see how that, that goes. We'll probably get into a bit more of the dynamics of that uh, shortly. But let's... Uh, Let's think back, Scott, to those many months ago when we were all in Barcelona for pre-season testing, if you can uh, think back that far. The feeling was Mercedes had the edge, so do you expect that still to apply? And it's probably worth a bit of a refresher about exactly why we thought that was the case. Yeah, so um, Mercedes had a, had, a, had a very strong pre-season test. Unlike last year, they had, uh, they had their, their launch and test specifications set uh, well in advance and had no intention of uh, changing things dramatically from test one to test two, which means uh, having ended 2019 so strongly, they were able to go into pre-season testing with a really good understanding of the things, not necessarily meaning it was same old, same old, because obviously they turned a, a lot of heads with the with the DAS system. Uh, but they, they, they were just on it straight away. They were quick. They looked good on the, the long runs and, and Ferrari were, were very vocal in, the, in their respective fears and Red Bull were a bit... I wouldn't say they were like they didn't have like an arrogance around them, but they had a they were oozing confidence off track, even though on track it didn't quite tally. So it sort of felt a little bit like they were either holding something back or they knew something we didn't. Maybe they had a nice upgrade coming for Melbourne or whatever. So the feeling was very much that it was Mercedes in front and then maybe Red Bull just having an advantage on Ferrari behind or even being clear of Ferrari, depending on your viewpoint. I don't really see any reason why Mercedes shouldn't go into this pre- into season as favourite because because they th- there's been limitations to what teams have been able to do in the interim and while while we know that Red Bull we've seen uh, pictures of the of, of the car already from running at their filming day at Silverstone uh, last week uh, where you can see extra detail at the rear of the floor which wasn't there for preseason testing whether that was going to be there for Melbourne or not we don't know but the point is it wasn't there. Last time we saw these cars on track, there's been rumours one way or the other about what Ferrari might be doing. Mercedes emphatic came out and said they're going to try and unleash as much of three, four months worth of development as they possibly can, having spent January, February and most of March working on stuff that they then had to pause because everyone was in shutdown. So I just think it's going to be a case of the best getting better. And it really, really depends on whether Red Bull or Ferrari, if they're not too far behind, if if they can actually live with that and, and keep with them, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got the the Red Bull haven't really shown their hand, but they do feel like they've got something to something to to show. Ferrari's a little bit more uncertain. Although Mark, as you uh, wrote about and talked about at the time, we saw kind of a bit of a glimpse of of potential better performance from from Ferrari. I think we all broadly think that Ferrari's still going to be in the top three. I think there were those who are forecasting they'd be buried in the midfield and certainly behind racing points on pace. But there were some mixed messages, even though there's an overall bit of a thumbs down for Ferrari and not not quite where it should be. There are some reasons to suggest it's in a, in better shape than perhaps the, the headline time suggests. Yeah, it looked like they were vying with, as Scott said, they were vying with Red Bull as the second fastest car. You know, once you did a a proper analysis of the long runs in that second week. It looked like Merck had a couple of tenths in hand over them. Um, but the, you, that's not what Scott touched on. That's not what you would have taken from the feedback of those teams. Yeah, Merck was quietly satisfied it had all gone smoothly enough, but Red Bull did have the air of a team that figured it, it, it was, you know, it, it had something. It was unusually bullish. And the numbers gave no justification for that bullishness, none. So we have to assume the numbers aren't telling the full underlying picture. It wasn't fuel load because we're talking about race sims here. You can just about get enough fuel into the tanks to do a race distance. So any difference between the cars and fuel loads is unlikely to be great. So was the Honda being run in a low mode that the team knew accounted for more than the deficit to Hamilton's race sim? Inside Ferrari, there's an expectation that Honda is going to show up <clears throat> with something beyond what they had in testing while denying that they themselves have an engine upgrade for Austria, which has been reported in Italy. So perhaps it's that. So, yeah, the numbers and testing were very clearly said Mercedes, but I would view that very cautiously. Yeah, it's it's always very provisional. It's the thing with pre-season testing, isn't it? It's it's not very precise data, and you can interpret it based on what it says and what you hear, but it, it's, a, it's, it's quite a, a shifting model, isn't it? So uh, we'll get vastly more information in the in the Austria weekend. But 
yeah, I think Red Bull, I'd imagine they'll be a little bit in the engine because we did see, for example, in 2019, Toro Rosso were the ones that ran more extreme in the engine modes to try to try them out and, and understand where they where they were so they could do it a little bit more low profile, uh, should we say. So yeah, uh, that, that'll shake out. Let's have a little bit of a look at the, the Drivers' Championship battle though, Mark. I mean, we talked before about how much we want to see Hamilton versus Verstappen. What are the chances of seeing that? And how about the other contenders for that? Because we've obviously we've talked about Bottas a little bit as well. So that there's there's a number of drivers who could kind of gate crash that uh, that battle. Not least, of course, Charles Leclerc, if Ferrari can do better, perhaps than we expect them to start. Yeah, um, and Sebastian Vettel as well, who I suspect is going to have a great season. Um, but which we'll get into a little bit later. But um, yeah, it's entirely dependent on what we've just been talking about in terms of the respective performances of the cars but if there are something approaching parity um yes we're gonna really have it would be sensationally great news if we can have a straight hamilton versus verstappen gloves off fight for the whole season but you can't discount the chances of bottas you can't discount the chances of the ferrari drivers if they can tweak a bit more development onto that um, and then we've got the interesting question of um, what strides is uh, Alex Albon going to make in the other Red Bull? Because, um, you know, there was lots to be um, impressed by his, his half season there last year and in his rookie season. So I think um, there's, a, there's a lot of uncertainty over not just how the cars stack up, but um, how, you know, the drivers are going to be performing within that because we've got... The unusual situation at Ferrari where Sebs knows that he's not staying there beyond this year um, and doesn't have to worry too much about whatever team instructions might be. And we've got Alex um, pushing to establish himself uh, among the, you know, the absolute elite because he's, you don't often get that opportunity to get in a top car. And so you've got to perform when you, when you do, regardless of whether you um, have had the ideal preparation or not. And and then you've got yeah the, as as we talked about before the um, what Bottas can do because uh, he's we were talking about Rosberg before with Rosberg his um, competition with Hamilton was always very how would you like goal based he, he he accepted that by and large he couldn't do it on pure performance he wasn't going to beat him over a season on pure performance and so he deliberately introduced other dimensions to his game and he talked about it after he retired with Valtteri it's, it, it, he hasn't got those other things to bring into his game he, he, he's not the sort of character that could apply psychological warfare on Hamilton or do anything that's against the interests of the team he's doing it on pure performance on trying to hone more more performance from himself on trying to constantly find more and more from within himself and he talked of the the preparation that he's been doing um, for this season as a you know ongoing with that so that that it, again is a it's very easy to say oh Valtteri's the number 2 but you know there was a period last year he got off to that flying start last year and Lewis was a, wasn't didn't have a great start of the year last year where if things had gone just slightly differently Lewis um uh, Valtteri could have been 5 nil up on Lewis so it's possible it's within him yeah, exactly. And I think that's uh, that's partly going to come down to the uh, to the start. And certainly, uh, Valtteri is not keen on the the idea of mind games. Whenever he's asked about whether he'll start digging into some of these things, he he's he's quite strong on that actually, and saying no, I don't want to do that. I shouldn't have to do that. I'm going to do that based on what I can do. And he's interesting because he's out qualified Lewis Hamilton about a third of the time while they've been together at Mercedes, which is pretty good. And his average deficit is is pretty good. The, the difficult thing is there there tends to be a point when after that bit early in the season when Lewis has got everything as he wants and he really is on top of the car and the tires and everything and that performance advantage starts to to come through and generally his his qualifying performances over the say the second half of the season have been stronger relative to Bottas in their times together than uh, than they have in the in the first half. So it was interesting to see how that uh, how that that changes. Uh, Scott Alban was mentioned there by Mark. I mean, I think even though he's a Red Bull driver, his job this year isn't to win the championship, is it? His job is to show that he's the guy for for Red Bull. Obviously, 
I guess the big battleground for him really is qualifying pace, isn't it? To make sure he can close that gap because it was about 0.43 last year in the second half of the year. I mean, first year driver with a mid-season change, that's not unreasonable up against Max Verstappen. Uh, the, the races, there, there were some strong races for him with Red Bull. Uh, but yeah, that that seems to be the big battleground on, on pace. What do you expect from, from Albon in terms of what he can deliver? It's very difficult to, to, to judge. I've got a lot of sympathy for him actually because... The job he needs to do this year is the is the job that Pierre Gasly was brought in for at the start of 2019. Gasly was meant to have all of 2019 as basically a free season to get up to speed and then basically support a Red Bull title bid in 2020. And Albon's tasked with exactly the same, but with the disadvantage of coming in halfway through 2019, then a second disadvantage in the fact that the pre-season he did have then got... Well, I'm not going to say it was all for nothing, of course it wasn't, but... He he was ready to go in Melbourne and, and get things started and, and he's lost that now. He's lost any momentum that he built through preseason. Um and now we're gonna go into a run of races where we have uh what's the at the moment we've got uh we've got three races, we've got uh, a week off, three races, a week off, and then two races, which looks like it's probably gonna become three races again. So a trio of triple headers with a week separating the 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 the, the, the three blocks. What, at what point there do you uh, do you as a as a driver have really got the uh, the opportunity to drill into everything you need to drill into to to, to make the progress you need to? I, I think he's I think it's harder for for Albon now than than it than it would or, or should have been had we had a, a normal season. So I think I think a good result for him is going to be in that sort of two or three temps from Verstappen uh mark and 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 being in the mix in races not being so far behind that he affords everybody else a free pit stop and being able to snipe at getting ahead of the the number two cars from mercedes and ferrari that's got to be Albon's aim and you're right he did have flashes last year which suggest he can do it but i do i honestly think his task has got harder now in 2020 the thing i think will help Albon is he's quite a phlegmatic character he's not phased by stuff he recovered last year from some tricky situations. Obviously, he had a few, or quite a few, uh, accidents at different times. But China, for example, he had that massive FP3 accident, started from the pit lane, came through uh, into the points. So I think he's got that right sort of mindset and ability to, if Verstappen starts off strongly and, and he's, he's again four tenths down in qualifying, I don't think that'll kind of crush his spirit like it it can do with uh, with some drivers. And Pierre Gasly certainly got quite lost, I think, at times uh, last year. But yeah, the real the real challenge is, is finding that uh, that that pace. Do you, do you think Albon's got what it takes, Mark? Ultimately, I think he, he does. Um, but whether he gets uh, enough time in this new season, as Scott was saying, I don't know. I, I do worry for him a little bit in... in career terms for that um he's um well if he if he's just coming into his second second season with this level of expectation and it's just been made another degree more difficult um and you're measuring you're being measured against the barometer of max verstappen it's it's difficult to think of of how only a yeah, we saw a rookie Lewis Hamilton um, and a rookie maybe uh, Fernando Alonso, although he was in a you know a much slower car. Could possibly you could conceive that they were performing at, at the sort of level that you would need to be able to do to to go head to head with somebody like that. But there's not many of those, and I think that that would be the only way you could absolutely guarantee that you're you're going to have a long-term future there otherwise it's it's not fully under his um control i'd quite like to see him having a having a strong start and red bull perhaps confirming him for the following year pretty quickly i can't really see an argument for them making a change unless there's some fundamental problem where they just feel albums hit a brick wall of improvement and there's nowhere else to to go so interesting to to monitor that we, we should probably talk a bit more about ferrari let's set charles leclerc aside for a few more minutes and just look at Vettel first now Mark you you mentioned you expected uh, Vettel to have a great uh, a great season I did a, uh, an interview with Martin Rundle recently where he said he'll fly and actually I also think that Vettel could be kind of 
unleashed a little bit. He's far from being, well, he's, he's literally a lame duck driver in that he knows he's out. Obviously, that phrase comes from lame duck presidents of the US when you know you're, uh, uh, you're out at the, uh, for, for the next term. But, um, Scott, where do you stand on this? It's rare a big name driver ends up in this situation. He's been discarded by Ferrari. We know that for all the positive spin that's been put on about them not coming to an agreement. So what do you expect from him? Could he spring a surprise? What's his attitude going to be? Is he going to be really going for it or is he going to just see out time and uh, cash his paycheck? Uh, no chance. No way. He's not on a... This It might well end up being a farewell tour for Sebastian if he doesn't want to stay in Formula 1 just to make up the numbers in the midfield. But that doesn't mean he's just going to be going around... Uh, what was the... I think there was, I feel like there was an expression that whether it was Alonso or someone used or recently about just basically drivers that just sort of when they know they're on their way out they're just sort of they're they're there for a good time they start the helmet swapping and stuff like this and it all becomes about sort of enjoying their final season I think the only way Sebastian if this is going to be his last season or if he's going to have some kind of interim spell with a midfield team he knows that this is probably his last shot at, at, at winning in F1, at least in, in the short term. I think he's only going to want to sign off in, in style. I'm I'm sure he feels he's... I, I bet he'd love to to prove to Ferrari that they've, that they've got it wrong. There's going to be loads of people that write him off. So I think he's definitely going to surprise. I can't see him going down without a fight. Uh, I, think, I think Ferrari has probably made a, a bad decision in the sense that we saw how hard it was to control Vettel's competitive brutal ruthless instincts last year when they were supposed to be working in unison what's Seb going to be like this year when he's got absolutely nothing to lose within that in, in, within that team I don't think he's going to give Leclerc an inch I think if he's got a chance at winning a race I don't think he's going to play ball I don't think he's going to play for the greater good I think it's going to be all about uh about Seb and, and improving his chances and I genuinely think if the Ferrari was good enough to fight for the title which I fear it might not be I think Seb would be a, be a title contender and I think he's going to make Charles' life very difficult this year. And I really struggle to believe that he would do anything other than give give it his all this year and, and be a thorn in the, in the side of everyone, including his own team, in a weird twist of uh, fate. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And he's all that sort of baggage and that pressure should have bled away, really. All those complications. He knows it's just a a one-season deal. He's going to be out the door in six months. He can't do anything to change that. Plus, it'll also tell us a bit more about his intentions. You know, some have suggested he might retire. Some have suggested he might take a sabbatical, for example. Uh, Mark Webber suggested that. Uh, But if he wants to take a sabbatical, he will think, right, well, even if he's thinking that might be a kind of Hakkinen-style sabbatical where he takes a sabbatical just to see whether he likes it and then thinks, actually, yeah, I'm going to... I'm going to not go back, but he will want to lay down a marker so that if he's going to teams to talk to them about 2022, he can say, look what I was doing in that Ferrari, performing at top level, not making those mistakes. We know his pace is is there. His pace at the back end of last season was very, very strong. Suzuka pole lap, really good. The mishaps are problematic, but if he can avoid having those mistakes, the, the stupid rejoining at Monza, the driving into Verstappen at uh, at Silverstone, those real misjudgments, which I feel suggested his mindset was slightly scrambled uh, in recent years. If he can do that, then he's going to have a real value. Mark, how how much of a pain do you think this could actually be for Charles Leclerc? Because now suddenly it's all on him, isn't it? He's got what he wanted. He's the main man. We know he's a fantastic driver, but he's ended up now, he's the spearhead, but he's got this sort of the, the ghost of Ferrari seasons past next to him who can just have this sort of happy-go-lucky approach to being a massive pain in the neck. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good summary of it, actually. Um, you know, if you're going you, you're gonna to be a top driver, you're going to have to um, face the challenges and, and, and meet them. And that's, uh, that's his particular challenge this year. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting that we're all seem, we all seem to agree on what Vettel's prospects are this year. And you talked about Martin Brundle as well. So he seems to be in the, the same camp. And yet you get the sense from uh, the outside that that's not the expectation at all. That the expectation is that he's just going to be sort of pensioned off and, and, and uh, you know, left in the shade. And, but I can't see it at all. He's going to, no way he's going to be operating as... Leclerc's number two, and he's going to have all this freedom that he he didn't have when he had to operate within the constraints of the team. So he's got this big weight lifted from his shoulders. He's hugely motivated, and that's that's a very different dynamic to how it would have been if Ferrari hadn't informed him 
before the season had even started, that there was no 21 seat there for him. So the delayed starts probably played its part in that dynamic. I think when it comes to Vettel, he's, he's a misunderstood driver, I feel. People misunderstand what's gone wrong, I feel, at Ferrari. I mean, obviously I'd say misunderstand because their opinion maybe differs a bit. I could be wrong. They could be right. All opinions are valid, shall we say, although uh, some are more evidence-based than others. But I think with Vettel, he's an outstanding driver. The, the driver who won four world championships, he's won more than 50 Grand Prix. You don't do that by chance without being very, very, very good. He's been quick. I don't think there's been a point in his career when you can question his speed. You could maybe question his motivation a few periods, or 2014, maybe a bit of 2016. But we know he's got that underlying speed. So that's the really uh, the really I- interesting thing. But how about Leclerc's got... He's got an, uh, an experience disadvantage compared to Lewis Hamilton in terms of winning championships. He hasn't been fighting at the front as long as, say, Max Verstappen and, and Valtteri Bottas. But... What what do you expect from him? Do you think it could be quite a tough season for him, just from the perspective of if he hasn't got the machinery, it's going to just pile the pressure on, isn't it? Because we know he can win races if he's got the car. He might not have the car. It's the uh, he's he's putting together the difficult second album, isn't he? And unfortunately, he doesn't have the same quality of equipment as he had last year, or he might not have the same quality of equipment as he had last year. So, I find it I find it difficult to see what Charles can do this year that will enhance his reputation. Because if Ferrari's not fighting for the title, then that means he can't really he can't really progress from the level he was at at the end of last season, which was he proved himself to be a race winner. He proved himself to be really, really good at nailing qualifying because he ended up with more poles than, than any other driver in, in 2019. Um, and... And he handled pressure really well. He the, the way he won those Grand Prix under pressure from Hamilton and then... In the towards the end at Monza, Hamilton faded and, and it was Bottas who was attacking and, and Leclerc repelled them both. But we so we were like, right, okay, now let's see it in a title context as or now let's see it as him being the, the number one rather than the underdog within Ferrari. And we're not gonna see that unless the preseason picture was completely wrong and Ferrari is fighting Mercedes for the title. And as as we've said before, I think Vettel's more fired up. I think there's more reason I think there's more reason to think that Vettel is going to be causing problems, not necessarily because he's you know acting out or anything like that, but I just mean like on track and in terms of pace and performances. So I I I, I just don't see what 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 Leclerc can do to to really impress unless he really gets a hold of things early on within Ferrari, and even if they're only fighting for thirds and fourths and fifths, he destroys Vettel. I feel like that's the only thing that Charles can do this year is emphatically prove that he is top dog within the team in performance not just because he's favored by Ferrari or, or what have you and it's a bit of a shame because you'd like ideally to be able to see him build on that first year in terms of results but but harder sent harder seasons are sent to to to, tr- to try drivers and make them better the likes of Hamilton always talk about the worst seasons or the mistakes being what make you make you stronger there are sometimes benefits to to, to battling a, a a difficulty or or with a slower car so it might well be that Leclerc gets an awful lot out of this season. And I'd, I see no reason for his personal performances to drop. So that will be really, really important for him to maintain a good level. But as you see what I mean, I just think it's that sort of external perception of, of the level he's at could take a little bit of a dip or maybe even only stay the same just because he might not be fighting for wins on a regular basis. Yeah, which would be a shame because he's, he's a quite brilliant driver and I'd love to see him be able to... Uh build his experience fighting for fighting for victories and that's what we want to see we want to see the best drivers uh, up front but he's got a long-term commitment from Ferrari so yeah if things go perhaps as we fear for Ferrari then he might have to bank this as one of those difficult learning years but uh, yeah let's hope Ferrari can do a little bit better and then we'll see a great battle between those two uh, two teammates should we move on to the, to the rest of the fields Mark in pre-season the racing point, pink Mercedes and its prospect for leading the way was was the, the big talking point. But that's the, the midfield, which is basically everyone who isn't one of the big three, really. They've all been hit to different extents by the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think this battle is going to play out the same way it would have done in a, in a normal season? Possibly not. Um, we seem to have three leading contenders in that battle, although they, they're all quite, you know, all seven teams are reasonably well matched. But I think the leading contenders you would say are Racing Point, McLaren and Renault and you'd have to say Racing Point of those three look 
the most long-term secure of this group, um, probably the most inured from events. So this pandemic brought terrible difficulties for the McLaren group. It's now looking for extra investors. The long-term prospects of the team itself look good, especially now with a lower cost cap in place than otherwise would have been without the pandemic. But that financial worry has got to be a distraction. Uh, Renault, Cyril Abutbull said that without the cost cap, Renault wouldn't have stayed around, and who knows what the future holds there. Renault has said it's now committed to F1 for years to come, but industry analysts aren't so convinced that Renault itself, the parent company, will be here for years to come. So a bit of uncertainty there. But on track, yeah, the the, the pink Merc, as you called it, look to have the edge in testing, and it may not even have shown its best because all the Merc engines were being run very conservatively on that day when Racing Point was doing its long runs because it had a few reliability worries the day before. But every time it hit the track, it was fast immediately. The McLaren and Renault looked to be able to do comparable times but seemed to needed a bit of massaging to get there, suggesting actually the Racing Point may have had something in hand. So before the season started, you might have said, uh, before the, the original start, you might have said, McLaren probably had greater development capacity, but under these very much financially constrained circumstances that all of F1's operating in, is that still the case? I, I think this contest will be subtly different to how it might have played out under the normal circumstances. Yeah, certainly when you're talking about the the feeling within the teams, the way they're talking, the Racing Point guys were very, very, very happy with the way that car was performing. They put it on track and it just did what they expected, which is the first the box you want to tick. If that's happening, at least you have an understanding of what you're what you're dealing with. And so, yeah, they're quietly confident plus all that background stability. It's really interesting because certainly you could look at it and Racing Point look like they might have had a bit of a step advantage. Daniel Ricciardo keeps saying that the leading uh, midfielders are covered by about a tenth. I think Alpha Tauri have a, a bit of a dark horse in that uh, in that group as well because that car looks decent in fits and starts maybe just giving a little bit away but Renault for example they've confirmed uh, at the back end of last week that they've got uh, a significant upgrade package uh, Cyril Abitable the team principal said that was uh, the upgrades due for Vietnam uh, the Dutch Grand Prix and for the Spanish Grand Prix so lots of parts uh, there uh, we're not quite sure what what will come from McLaren but Obviously, the, there's been financial difficulties uh, difficulties there. So it's, uh, yeah, a, a tricky little situation, but it all just does seem to point to being racing points time, doesn't it? Because they looked favourite before and because of their, that because of the fundamental nature of the way they're funded at this time and they are an upwardly mobile team that's being invested in, it's quite a new project in terms of the Lance Stroll-led consortium. That puts them in a nice situation, uh, doesn't it, Scott? Yeah, I agree. I think... Uh... I think it was the it had the potential to be sort of a not one season wonder necessarily because we know what potential there is within that team and and when they were Force India how good they were at being the best bang for buck team in Formula One and and punching above their weight but the way that they were going with this pink Mercedes concept sort of seemed like a bit of a short term fix after risking going down the rabbit hole over the last two or three years with their development direction. Um, Obviously, that's been extended a little bit because whatever happens in 2020, there's going to be a chunk of really good chunk of carryover of car for for 21. So they might get a second season out of it. And then obviously the question mark is how well can they then do the new regulations when they don't have a, a car to to put a bit of tracing paper over. But I think that's a, it's a slightly flippant way of looking at it because it isn't just a case of taking pictures and then building what you see. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Racing Point have done a very good job. They look really good in testing. Their rivals are really worried. You know they're worried when not only are they talking up Racing Point, but they're questioning the legality of it and constantly making digs, even when they're not really being asked about it. So, uh, I think they've got. Uh, I think they've got everyone. Um, I think they've got everyone worried. I think they've got a few people's uh, put a few people's noses out of joint, and I see no reason why they won't or couldn't have the the four fastest car exactly like they would have done at the start of the year. They're going to change their. I think, uh, I think if I'm right in saying that they had uh, a couple of upgrade I, I, plans in mind for, for 2020. There was going to be sort of one initial one and then uh, sort of uh, another one to tick it over to the end of the year and then that was it. So now they're only going to have the one upgrade once the season starts. So presumably they're going to be starting the year slightly better shape than they would have done. Uh, see how their midfield rivals get on. Uh, but I, I think that they could start the year with uh, definitely the four fastest car. And if they do have a bit of an advantage, what they will really need to do is hit the ground running. Because over a 22 race season, 
I think Racing Point might be the fourth fastest car but not finish fourth in the championship because I think while it's quicker, the protect, very possibly quicker than the McLaren and the Renault, I would put money on the McLaren and Renault partnerships being able to outscore the Racing Point one. But over a 16 race season, they might they might just get away with it. Yeah, and a lot depends on Lance Stroll, of course. He was only at just over 40% of Sergio Perez's points last year, so that rate needs to be uh, to be increased. And it does remain to be seen whether there's any still any protest or anything against the against the pink Mercedes. It's called Renault was certainly thinking about it, and the reason being that primarily, I think they're not expecting it to be outlawed or banned or or anything. But I think they want to kind of create a bit of a line in the sand over it. But I think maybe all the other goings on in the world has uh, made that less of a priority. But obviously, uh, you mentioned throw a bit of tracing paper over it. Obviously, what they've done is they photographed the car. They've they've admitted they have copied it. But what you cannot do on the rules and what they have not done, uh, that there's no evidence to suggest that they've overstepped this mark. You can't take the technical drawings from Mercedes. You can't scan the car and reproduce it that way you've you've got to do it kind of visually with things that you could do there's nothing stopping any team from taking a load of photos of whatever and, and putting it together so interesting to see how uh, how they get on let's have a bit of a look at the the battle at, at the back uh now i'm i'm saying about it's the last three teams in the constructors championship we haven't mentioned from last year so that's alfa romeo Haas, and uh and williams let's have a Bit of a look, Scott, in a Williams terms. They've been hit by the global situation. Title sponsor Rocket's gone. They've got that tweak livery that they uh, they uh, revealed last week, which looked uh, which looked quite nice. They've got this strategic review going on that could lead to a sale of all or part of the team. They were confident they could at least go into the season off the at, at the back of the midfield and maybe give Alpha a run for its money. So, do you think that's still possible, or do you think Williams is in a tricky situation, particularly considering, say, Haas? has said that they're not going to be developing the car because they don't know what the budget situation is. They don't know how many races there are. Yeah, I, I think it is. And and you mentioned the new livery. <laughs> this is going to sound really stupid, but that that car, that car, the, the, the new look for the Williams, looks a lot more like a car that's going to go racing in the midfield. I just think it's, it's a... I think it's a smarter livery. Sometimes... The livery makes literally no difference whatsoever, but it just it it just has a slightly sleeker look about it. It just, it looks a little bit, it just looks a little bit more put together. Whereas the, sleek Williams for podium finishes predicts Mitchell. That's a headline on <laughs> It just I, I just feel like before preseason started, the general expectation would have been, oh, you know, Williams at the back again, probably off the back of the midfield. It's not going to be that great. You saw the car, and I actually quite liked the way they 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 pieced all the colours together on it. But other people weren't so kind. They 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 compared it to they compared it to a, a tub of toothpaste, didn't they? Uh, a few of the more critical people. Um, and then it's like it's almost like they've gone through pre-season. The car is actually a bit faster. It's a bit more competitive. And now, actually, when we go into the real 2020 season, it's going to look the part as well. Uh, and it just feels like there's been a little bit of a, what's the word, like transformation or something in between pre-season and now. And I just think, yeah, maybe there is a, an opportunity here for them to, to 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 prove that there's light at the end of the tunnel, prove that all of the work that's gone in to make the car better is paying off, for George Russell to prove that all of that effort last year, over the winter, through the virtual Grand Prix series even, shows that he has the dedication, professionalism and an application to be a top-line Grand Prix driver and make the progress that he needs to make. Um, and then also try and either encourage a new investor to come on board or help nudge negotiations over the line wherever they're at. And all of this stuff can add together to have a, a bit of a step on track this season. Could go a long way to to determining the, the, the future of, of Williams as a team. And while the news about a strategic review and it might be be sold, you know, it's sad in one sense. There is, I don't feel like it's do pay, paying them lip service to say that there are things about Williams that do feel fundamentally different now. It does feel like a team that has, whether it's been dragged kicking and screaming or otherwise, has embraced what an F1 team needs to move towards in, in this time. And I really hope that when we go racing in Austria, we will see... The, the some of the fruits of that labour on track. I mean, if George, I I feel for Nicholas Latifi because he 
because I feel that this is a really horrible situation for you to make your Grand Prix debut. He had, I think he bore the brunt of the reliability problems in pre-season testing, didn't he? Uh, he only had three days anyway, so it, he, he, he was restricted, then lost all of that momentum. Now he goes into the season now trying to work out what's going to happen. But I would love it if George is fighting for a Q2 place or is anywhere near it. I don't necessarily think that that's going to be nailed on, but I think there are going to be races where this car is just about quick enough. And it would just be great to see. Uh, Mark, we haven't really addressed Alpha yet. What do you make of Alpha Romeo? Do you think that they're under threat from uh, from Williams in terms of performance? Um, it certainly looked that way in, in testing. It looked like um, they'd be racing Williams, maybe Haas. Um, it's, let's see. They're, they're, uh, they're a team that in... Um, terms of what they have as available spend are in, in quite a good position um, relative to that end of the grid. It's 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 got good sponsorship and um, it's got you know good facilities there. So I, I would imagine it's got probably a better development um, potential in within their their group than say Williams or Haas. So I I would really they they should, even if they were at that level at the start of the season, they really should be able to pull away and start competing with the likes of Renault and McLaren. But um, in terms of Williams, the, I I just wonder if the the pandemic, which is you know really intensified the, the the financial stress of well everyone, but those teams that were struggling a little bit financially. I wonder if th- th- this is sort of brought it to a point and, and, and in doing so more quickly than it would otherwise have done, it might actually be healthier for it in, in, lo- in longer term. Um, and certainly whatever whatever the outcome of that and who ends up owning it and what share and who, who ends up running it, I think it's very clear that the the car is in, competitively better than last year relative to the, the opposition and it's no longer hanging off the back. It is part of that little group at the back instead. So, But I think that would be true, whichever way the season played out. But I think um, in terms of the effect of the pandemic, I think actually long-term, you might wonder if it's maybe even done Williams a favour. I think there needed to be a reckoning there in terms of that uh, that team's future. So, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's forced that. Uh, Haas interests me going into, particularly the Austria weekend, Haas generally goes pretty well at the Red Bull ring. Uh, even when they haven't had a, a result there as they did last year, that the car was quick before it uh, started uh, eating its tyres and overheating them desperately. So I'm quite interested to see how they do that. I got the impression in testing that they broadly got on top of last year's problem, but I'm not 100% sure. And we didn't see anything extraordinary from them. We have in, pre- in previous years seen some really mega race runs from them, even though their headline times aren't great. Has seems to me the, the the team with the greatest capacity to surprise, given that it kind of feels like they're not quite at the front, uh, able to bother the leading midfielders. But history suggests that, that that they might be able to, or they might still be in all sorts of tire troubles when they go to a race weekend that's going to be uh, hotter. Does does anyone really have a feel for exactly what Haas is going to do? Well, Haas historically is the, by far the most volatile um, performing car. It just it can be super fast. It can be nibbling at the back in qualifying of the big three and then be the slowest car in the race. So that was the case last year. Um, and then the next race, they can not get out of Q1. So, yeah, I think they seem to have understood what was driving that by the end of last year. They seem to have got on top of that particular problem. But even outside of that, I think the the very small size of that team means that it's not as well equipped as the others to really be able to dig deep and quickly resolve problems, hence it's the volatility of its form. So I think quite often what happens is it, Delara and, and, and the Haas uh, aero people, and with the help of the Ferrari facilities, end up designing a pretty decent car, good, a good midfield car that could be competitive if it was had the facilities of a top team to run it. Um, but it doesn't have, and really when you get yourself into a little bit of difficulty and you need to start digging down into what it what the problem is that seems to be what trips it up so if they get a clear run at it yeah they could have a great season um but i think there's always 
just a, something there ready to trip them up and you could see that volatility return. Yeah, that's very true of, of Hassan. We should say as a footnote to this battle at the back, there is actually effectively a prize for being lost now with the sliding scale of ATR, the aero testing regulations, your uh, your wind tunnel and your CFD time for, for next season is dictated by the reverse of where you are in the championships. So that's an interesting little subplot. The worse off you're doing, the more uh, you get. I don't think people will be out there running to uh, to battle to be, uh, to be last, but uh, consolation prize uh, uh, at least. Seeing as we've been through all the teams, do we dare throw to Scott for a Scots people? You can do, if you want. Take it away. We still haven't got your theme tune, but uh, but we're getting there. What is, you don't take this seriously enough. That's the problem. That's your problem, Ed. Yeah, I was promised a theme tune. You've been letting me down. Uh, no, so I, I was actually sort of, I was on the fence about what to do for this one. So I actually cheated and asked two questions because I wasn't sure I'd get enough responses to the first one. But I did, so I'm going to go with that. So... What we're looking at this week is um, I asked people for the uh, the best unusual place that they've seen an F1 car. Uh, and I was sort of hoping for an eclectic mix of responses, and that is exactly what I got. Unsurprisingly, well, I'll say unsurprisingly, the nut that I had two or three people say that they've been in service stations uh, in France and Italy that have got Ferrari F1 cars propped up in the services that feels to me like there are some quite dishonest service stations out there am i am i being too cynical do 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 we feel that there that is a legitimate place for a ferrari formula one car to end up no it'll be a generic formula one car in ferrari livery surely like a giant version of those one to 43 generic racing car models (laughs) exactly i i used to see um every every day when i used to go and, and pick my then wife up from work, a Ferrari liveried Ram in um, in an office because um, that's that's what it, where it was and it was one floor up and I could never understand how they got it in there but um, it was ex Kenny Atchison Ram from 1983 but it was uh, in Ferrari livery <laughs> that was just behind that- King's Cross so that's the most unusual place I've seen one oh and also going down that street that morning. I saw Pedro Rodriguez's 1970 BRM being pushed up to the street. It was being taken to a photo shoot. Um, but just, just in this Victorian street, you don't expect to see Pedro Rodriguez's P153 BRM, but I did. That's incredible. That's a, that's a very good effort. Um, I, I think a couple of my favorite ones uh, involve appearances of Formula One cars at Fates. Uh, which I think is brilliant. So Alan Hibbert saw a Lotus 77 uh, 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 fate in, in around 1980, said he was 12 at the time, paid 20 pence and got to sit in it. Now that's a good, as a, as a kid, that is a good investment. I mean, what's, what was 1980, 20 pence? What was that worth now? Well, probably about two pounds. 12-year-old me would have paid two quid. Depends to, to if it's Mario Andretti's or Gunnar Nielsen, wouldn't it? He'd probably pay about 250 for Mario's and about two quid for Gunnar's. The other fate was, uh, let's let me find it. Matt Burkett, the 2002 Jordan turned up in his uh, primary school playground. Uh, no one else seemed to care except for him. He said he was about five years old at the time and absolutely loved it. <laughs> Which is just uh, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, there's obviously a, a, a few, suge- a few um, anecdotes of cars that sort of turned up, I guess, for um, sponsored, like, events like displays from sponsors so one of them was uh, williams fw15c at sega world in london the sega f1 league the thing like the the thing that that reminds me of is uh and and this is uh from from matt hughes who's mentioned it there that reminds me of senna's trophy was it the, it was it was donnington wasn't it 93 he got the did he get the sonic sonic the hedgehog trophy after that race, yeah, that sounds familiar. It was the Sega European Grand Prix, wasn't it? That would make sense. There, yeah, that would be that would be why it is. Phil Wright, the Warsteiner Brewery has a 1978 Arrows A1 on on display. He's also seen the 2017 Merck uh, at Ludgate Hill, which is around the corner from where he works in in central London. Motorsport Coms professional extraordinaire Rebecca Banks, very close with the PKs, sent uh, a photo from. Uh, PK Senior's house with his uh, one of his 1980s Williams up on the wall, uh, which is very cool. And there are two dogs at the bottom of uh, Bex's photo who don't seem to care one bit 
about their owner or their owner's very, very, very cool car that is suspended from the wall. I'm a huge fan of Formula, real Formula One cars on the wall. I, I can remember seeing the, the picture of the PK one some time ago and thinking, yeah, if I've ever got infinite infinite cash, I'll uh, I'll stick an Andrea Motor or uh, or an Eiffelland or uh, or uh, or something of something of that ilk up, up on the wall. It's always an Eiffelland with you. Of course, it's an Eiffelland. Danish F1 photographer Peter Nygaard has um, Joe Bonnier's 1970 McLaren on his wall. And apparently you can see, it. if you if you get the double-decker bus past his house, you can actually just look at this Formula 1 car as you go past his window. I, I If I ever get to the point where I can uh, either blag or afford an F1 car on my wall, uh, the world has gone truly mad. I'll, I'll do a couple more. Alan, Alan said that he had, uh, he saw Timo Glock's Marussia uh, the MRO one in a sports hall at Chester University. Apparently, it's part of an event for launching their engineering department. So he and a couple of friends had uh, permission to uh, off school to to, to go and uh, check out the uh, check out the Marussia. There was also uh, Lewis McMurray took a swipe at the Life L one ninety. Said that he saw that in the most unusual place imaginable, moving under its own power at Goodwood. I thought that was quite good, and then I will. We talk. We start. I started this by talking about service stations. Uh, I've got no idea how to pronounce this person's name, but Tesora Mendis says has, has sent a photo of a '98 Prost sitting in a French petrol station, and I'm confident this is actually a a, Pro, a Prost show car rather than generic F1 car in Prost livery because based on what I can see in the background it seems to be part of a Peugeot display so I presume it's like a Peugeot sh- a show car that Peugeot had to sort of do some stuff but yeah there's just I can see in the background I can see uh what looks like a really terrible looking tiny cafe at the back of the petrol station and there's three people with their backs turned. They don't care a jot that they seem to have a road car from the first half of the 20th century and a, and a Prost Formula 1 car in the lobby behind them. They don't seem to have any interest in it uh, whatsoever. But I appreciate the, the photo being sent in all the same. And then the last one I will end on uh, is from uh, Christian Godfrey, who says uh, they were... They were visiting. Uh, they were. They were in. They were in Russia. I guess as a either presumably as a as a holiday or on business, and uh, saw an F1 car at Red Square in Moscow in 2011, which is quite cool. Was Vladimir Putin driving it? He probably told everyone he was, and then everyone was forced to believe him. That maybe uh, he did drive on the demo one of the one of the Renault F1 cars. Well, maybe maybe it was maybe that was the day. I have no idea. I, I my uh, I don't know if I've got an. Un- a good contender for an unusual place i've seen an f1 car marks is really good i'm not sure if i've got one that's that uh impressive I... gary anderson found one in a hedge oh yeah he did yeah yeah <laughs> what was it what car was it he suspected it may have been life related again he said it was in a, in a hedge near silverstone i think obviously. it had failed its crash test and so rather than take it all the way back to italy they just threw it out of the back of the van that's brilliant um my the the only contender i can really offer it's not it's not necessarily that unusual because it was at a racetrack, which obviously is a pretty usual place to find a Formula One car. But um, I'm not going to, I kind of want to avoid saying where it is. So I'm just going to get grief off of Ed uh, for, for making a reference to it. But it was, it, it was, it was last year. I was on a busman's holiday and I was in a, I was in a, I was in a club racing paddock and there was an adapted 2008 Williams F1 car with like a butchered sports car, derived engine in the back of it and it had all of the aero of the 08 williams on the front but like the back end of the car was sort of like it was just off it was like it was twisted and the 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 bodywork was really random and it's basically a car that just does the rounds and it, it does the occasional demo run but you can just basically pay a not an astronomical fee i don't think to just do just do runs in it and then they basically they they, they cone off parts of, of of circuits and you can just go around and, and have a blat around a, a fast open track in what is effectively a 2008 formula one car which is uh which is pretty cool i just didn't expect to see it because i was just in a random uh club racing paddock uh what about you ed 
I'm disappointing myself. I can't. I can't quite think of something. I think this is quite a rich, rich uh, scene to be mined, though. I, th- I think. I think our listeners will have uh, have many more ones. I'm particularly interested in photographic evidence of real Formula One cars on walls. I, I think I'll ask this question again. I think this can be a, this can be a rolling one, even if I don't specifically ask it. Ask it. Feel free to send in send in pics of cars seen in random places, and as Ed said, particularly cars that have been not necessarily thrown up onto a wall, but carefully placed there and make sure you detail exactly how that came to be. Especially if it's an unsuccessful F1 car mounted on the wall. That's that's the ultimate prize for me. And if anyone has an Eiffeland, if you just have one lying around, if you've seen one in a hedge, if you've found one at your school fate, like let Ed know. Drop him a message at EdStrawF1 on Twitter. Just let him know. He, he, he will want it on his wall. Yeah, there's only one of them, there's only one of them and it's been beautifully restored. I saw it at Silverstone few years ago and it's been properly properly restored look really uh really impressive i think it's at, i think it's in the uk that car but uh yeah there was only one because it's march based but i'm digressing anyway we did convene here to preview the formula one season hopefully we did do that before we got onto the subject of cars on walls and cars opening fates and working at petrol stations or whatever it's uh scott was talking about so thanks very much scott mitchell and mark hughes for your uh insight of course the race.com and don't forget the hyphen will have loads of coverage uh from the austrian grand prix both in the build-up during the weekend and after and now the season started we're really looking forward to getting our teeth into some on-track action because since we've launched we've uh, we've yet to have a grand prix we all went to australia no Grand Prix happened and we're really looking forward to uh, to Austria. And of course, we'll be doing regular podcasts after the race as well uh, in the Race F1 podcast feed. So the three of us hopefully will will convene on, uh, on Sunday night to look back on what I'm sure will be a thrilling race. So yeah, do make sure you're subscribed so you can listen to that. And everyone, please do enjoy the fact that F1 is back. <laughs>